0: Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayamago Land, part of the Aurora Nation, and now Love, Rinse, Repeat, part of the Uniting Mission and Education family as part of the Synod of Uniting Church in Australia, New South Wales, ACT. Very excited to come come inside this larger family and uh, and just want to also promote their upcoming in June, their preaching festival, Preach Fest. Uh, there'll be more information in the show notes today. Uh, my name is Leah Miller, he, him, he's a minister in the Uniting Church. In Australia and the host of Love, Rinse, Repeat. And my guest today I'm very excited to have is Joshua W. Jip. Joshua Jip, the author of The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. Joshua, welcome along. Yeah, uh, good to be here, Liam. Thanks. Now, for those who don't know, uh, Joshua is Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, his previous books include Christ the King, Paul's royal ideology and saved by faith and hospitality. Uh, an excellent book, which which won uh, the Academy of Parish Parish Clergy's Book of the Year in 2018. Uh, so I guess you know a question to, as we wade in as a, a New Testament scholar, as a, as someone, um, you know, how did how did you how did you find yourself doing this kind of work? Mm. What was it about the New Testament that was just so captivating that you're like, this is <laughs> yeah. this is my life now? Yeah. I guess, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it ultimately,
1: it has to do with uh, some of the big claims that the New Testament makes, you know, in terms of meanings of uh, life and death and how God has acted in the world to uh, save and rescue a people for himself. And so, you know, it really started out, I guess, with me reading the the scriptures, uh, the Old and New Testament, um, when I was in high school um and then just you know, uh, hearing—I um, obviously am a Christian, so hearing you know the uh, the, uh, the the word of God, like being uh, proclaimed through the scriptures, like th- that just got me interested in all sorts of different kinds of. Questions and many of them were located to the scriptures, but many of them also were just questions about life, you know, in terms of Mm. who am I? What are we doing here? What should I be doing? Uh, You know, (laughs) um, why is the world the way it is? Why is there love? Why is there hate? Why is there, you know, it's just sort of Mm. um, a lot of these big questions and certainly was finding the answers uh, to those both then and now in the scriptures. So I've always, um, on the one hand, love just sort of like the nitty gritty academic element of languages and history and, you know, these sorts of things. But also, you know, with a sense of wanting to be attuned to what is going on in the world. What is God doing in the world? Uh, how do the scriptures speak into those realities in the New Testament? Obviously, one could do this from the Old Testament. One could do this from a variety of other places as well. But for me, um, as a Christian, um, the New Testament was just sort of like a captivating place for me to be able to both um, ask those questions as well as look for opportunities to give answers to those questions. So that's ultimately why, obviously, you need a paycheck, you know, to some extent to live in this world. But of all the things I could do, those that, that felt to me sort of like both the most meaningful and exciting. And then also to be able to do it in a way where hopefully I could use some of the gifts that God has given to me uh, um, and that I've cultivated to help teach and shape mm. and form and be with other people that are on that same kind of academic, you know, mm. uh, not just academic academic pastoral existential
0: kind of trajectory so mm. yeah oh, thank you for that it's curious yeah. i was thinking i was thinking about how you know you're talking there about it's it's you know it's these big questions that you're wrestling with and, and turning to yeah. finding them in the new Testament and, and how that shaped your desire to write this book right which is this mm. kind of yeah. large like you know so there's yeah we'll yeah. get into it more but there's like you know the early, you know, sec- first section of being about okay, let me test this hypothesis of, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or push this hypothesis that, um, you know, Jesus messianic identity is the, um, you know, presupposition of and primary mm-hmm. content um, of the New Testament theology. But then it goes to, so what then? How does this then shape how we think those big yeah. questions about Christology and soteriology and what how we live in the world in light yeah. of this? So do, do you feel there's a connection of this book? you know, is drawn out of those early desires. I got to wrestle with how these 27 <laughs> small books. Totally. Um, absolutely. Lead to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's,
1: there's a lot there that, you know, that I could probably try to unpack, but it's sort of, there, there are times where it's like, yeah, maybe I'm just writing an academic article and I've got one particular question and maybe it's, I don't know what it has to do with anything about the world. And like, I'm happy to like go into that and explore that. And it, um, Uh, And the more I do that, the more it also helps me ask and answer big questions. But I would say, yeah, you're right. Like generally, you know, when I'm uh, um, when I'm teaching or I'm writing, um, especially you know, sort of like a larger book like this, I really am, you know, often interested and motivated in um, larger questions that um, take their point of bearing from the scriptural text but then also in some ways are trying to say, okay, well, so what? Like, okay, cool. You you showed me that there's this theme here, you know, or you showed me that I should read this phrase, you know, this way and not that way. All of that is like relevant and interesting. I do that and other people try, but ultimately I'm kind of like interested in. And so what, like, how does that help me? And how does that help others, you know, in some way sort of uh, uh, think about God, think about our world, think about our people and so forth. And so yeah I could have written a book I think that had just sort of kept the first half of the book. well, um, it's not quite divided into half parts let me put it that way. <laughs> but I did want to sort of say, okay well let, let me test this hypothesis mm. what would be what would be missing from our you know scriptural or dog, not scriptural our dogmatic theological categories? you know, if we don't understand the central um, aspect of Jesus' identity as the Messiah? And also, what are some ways, you know, in which this aspect of Jesus as the Messiah still is um, significant and crucial to the life of Christian discipleship mm. and politics and engaging our
0: world? So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. And I think, yeah, that's really helpful. And so as just start to, you know, wait in a bit more here. So one of the things you kind of address early on in the book is um, is it still the age for a new Testament theology kind of right. thing to some yeah. extent? Like, you know, yeah. and I, I was thinking about, um, Dale Martin's biblical truths and he kind of explores mm. this a bit of like, is yeah. this a, a live genre? Um, and, you know, cause there's, and there's kind of two questions here cause there's, you know, there's that push toward, as you acknowledge in the book that, um, plurality and diversity rather than kind of finding some sort of unifying thread yeah. is, um, you know, people have pointed to the, good reasons to, to explore that. Um, And then also that even, you know, there's always that tension of if I start saying one thing and one image and one claim is, is primary, then, you know, does it feel like I'm relegating? Yes, exactly. So how did you feel like, you know, entering into this project, knowing all that in the background, uh, you know, and Mm. how did it kind of shape what was, how you were doing it, maybe in the way that, you know, in the bygone golden year of New Testament theology, those questions weren't as, as in the minds of those authors.
1: Oh man, that's a great question. Um, and there, boy, there's there's so much there. Um, (laughs) yeah, I think, you know, let me put it this way. I started the, the genesis of the book actually in some ways started with me working through different scriptural texts and saying, you know, really, you know, The the Messianic identity of Jesus is so crucial, not only to, you know, this passage or that passage, but to making sense of, like, major aspects of who the New Testament authors, you know, claimed he was, and then unpacked that in terms of things related to, you know, how Christ accomplishes salvation or images for the church or political, you know, and so it was just sort of working through all these different texts and saying, and, and as you, you read, you know, the previous book I'd written, Christ is King, w- which w- was making that argument all with respect to Paul. And while I was doing that, I was saying, but Matthew and Mark, you know, and like in yeah. Revelation, it's, it's really here. So I think, you know, I, I kind of wanted to just write a book on the Messiah but as I was then looking at all these different texts, I said, man, the New Testament texts are different in so many different ways. I mean, it's obviously, you know, for some Christians, it just, you know, take a minute and remind yourselves, it's crazy. We have four Gospels, you know, and uh, and we have three that are synoptics and one that are John. Like there is plenty of plurality and diversity and different images. And I think that's one of the things that I love about the New Testament. But for all of the differences, right, they're all agreed, except I think is it second or third John, but they're, they're just little notes, you know, in terms of like calling Jesus Christos. Mm-hmm. And they do it in surprisingly, at times, surprisingly similar ways. So I guess I just, the first thing I'll say is, you know, the book really started out as trying to write a book just on the Messiah. But as I got into that more and more, I, I started to say, you know, I think, This is one of, if not the central thread that sort of is one of the reasons why all these texts are put together and why it's not absurd or silly to actually read these 27 texts together, despite all of their differences. That said, you know, and I do say this at times uh, a couple of places in the book. Um, I don't think in our culture, it's that, uh, you know, it's like saying something's diverse or there's plurality is like not that surprising. Mm. It's, a little, it's harder to actually say, here's there's, here's where the unity, you know, lies. Um, so I did want to make that claim while at the same time, um, it's not a traditional New Testament theology. Um, for reasons that you mentioned, I'm not trying to sort of in any way, like produce a New Testament theology that brings closure to the New Testament. I'd rather like scholarship, you know, most of my scholarship, if, you know, speaking in a grandiose way would open up doors rather than sort of like try to say, here's the definitive end all be all kind of, I think those days are definitely over at least (laughs) for the time being in terms of writing New Testament theologies. I don't think the genre is as important, um, as it once was, um, Uh, And so even though I, you know, I've, I've done this as a thought experiment. I mean, I have no, you know, like what could you, could you write a similar book using a different kind of Christological image for Jesus? You know, Um, could you do it? Obviously there are all kinds of different Christological images for Jesus. Could you do it, you know, in terms of Christ as the rejected prophet like Moses or as a priestly figure or You know, um, we could just keep going down the list. And obviously, I'm certainly I think that's a fascinating project, you know, and I I still wonder, though, to be honest, um, and maybe this just reflects my own interests, I still at times do wonder if you could get as broad a purchase from another Christological title or image Mm -hmm um, from Matthew all the way to revelation as what you do get with his messianic identity. Mm. Um, but ultimately there's a plurality of images and to some extent, some of the joy and like ask, like reasons that the new Testament texts are so fun is because of the constellation of images, the way they do bring Mm. them together. So, Mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. There's so much there in terms of your question. I'm just, Touching no, on a couple of
0: them. That's but, great. No, that's really helpful. And I, I was thinking about how, so when you did go looking through, you know, obviously you already spent some time thinking about this with Paul and that, that sparked others, but this is that he, I'm to sit down and look through it all. Was there yeah. any particular surprising um, encounters? You went to one book and you were like, oh, wow, I didn't think like two Peter went at it a completely way I didn't expect or <laughs> yeah. oh, I really didn't yeah. think I was going to find anything about this in, whatever, Jude, but I did, you know, or whatever it might be. Was there a particular surprise along the way? Yeah.
1: Um, Well, there's a couple of them, I guess. You know, one, I would say the gospel of John has sort of a long history or I don't know how long it is, but I think when most people think of the gospel of John, right, they're thinking of images like Jesus as the divine logos and, Mm. you know, the claims that he's making that seem really, you know kind of wild when you compare them to the synoptics in terms of I and the father are one. Um, and I'm not, I don't argue that sort of like that's messianic imagery. Messianic imagery is everywhere. But I think what I was maybe surprised in John w- with John, for example, was to say it's not as though John picked up on Logos imagery or on another, you know, temple motif or something uh, uh, and then kind of left Messiah behind Um, as if it's sort of like, I've got more important things to do, and I'm out of here with this one now. It's actually messiahship um, and some of the things we typically think of with respect to John, right, just do form sort of like critical bread, you know, bread and butter aspects of John's argument. So whether it's the first chapter after the prologue and everybody's running around saying, could this be the messiah? Is this the messiah of Israel? Is this the king of, you know, or whether it's um, traditional images in terms of Jesus as sort of the, you know, Ezekiel 34, you know, shepherd, Davidic shepherd who comes to rescue those who are lost. Or whether it's, you know, in uh, the image of Jesus as the Davidic, like Messiah, uh, um, sorry, the um, temple builder. I mean, there's there's ways in which um uh, messianism just you know is is worked into John in a more ro- robust way. That was one yeah. text where I was thought, okay, this will be interesting to see um, if you know how my argument how my argument works there. I don't. A second one I'm saying I'm not sure if this is a surprise per se. Um, Although it's a little bit of I don't, um, an oddity, would be Hebrews and the way in which Hebrews also, in my, at least in my view, sort of presupposes that Jesus is the royal Davidic Messiah, the one who is spoken of in Psalm two, Second Samuel seven, Psalm one ten one, but then basically says. Um, since this is the case and this is sort of like bedrock assumption and he's not from the tribe of Judah, but, you know, and we we'll keep reading Psalm 110, but he is, you know, the, uh, the, the, basically the Davidic Messiah is also the, um, priestly Melchizedek figure. I'm not sure if so much, if that was a surprise as much as it was Hebrews representing, I think, as it often does sort of a different take mm-hmm. in terms of, um, really emphasizing um that jesus messianic identity is also you know his priestly identity Mm -hmm. those two you know are 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 together in a way that um i'm not true sure is true of the other new testament texts at least in quite the same way so those were Mm -hmm. a couple of yeah yeah interesting insights for me yeah
0: that's really helpful I was thinking about when you were talking about John then, because, like, I think sometimes, you know, people might say, like, okay, John's actually now, like, he's gone, yeah, the Messiah thing was, like, helpful, but actually we're actually opening up the scope here um, and moving into a new world. And I think sometimes you think that that kind of obviously is a move that has happened in Christianity at times where it's like, okay, the Messiah thing is maybe a bit too Israel-bound. And and what we want to do is find ways of speaking about Jesus that, you know, and this is obviously where it gets dangerous, is departing from, um, you know Israel and from that, and from Jesus' Jewishness and from that particular context of of those hopes and expectations. Right. And so curious about how you feel, you know navigating you know life in the New Testament for Christians and New Testament scholars is this kind of consistent wrestling with you know questions of supersessionism and, and mm. placement and and shifts. Yep. And so like in some ways, I can think of like, okay, this real emphasis on Jesus, Messianic identity, is a way of reminding us all that Jesus is Jewish and tied to the yeah. Davidic line, or that. But at the same time, we're also making claims that it goes in a different direction, and so yeah. there's this yeah. thing of by claiming Messiah, almost saying actually, where it goes, that we've got the actual understanding of what Messiah is, and so yeah. how you felt yeah. navigating those, like yeah, ways that this is actually a, a, a positive, you know, move against kind of superstitionism or <laughs> replacementism, yeah. and the yeah. way that it kind of sometimes could could be read in going the other way.
1: Oh yeah. That's another great question. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, um, you're, you're asking a question, but kind of articulating it in a way that is, um, absolutely like one of the things I've wrestled with, not just in writing this book, but in, you know, a lot of, um, just my own thinking and writing over the last few years. Um, so yeah, oh, where to begin? I think you're absolutely right. I guess, let me, let me maybe, you know, start get in the book of acts or, you know, sort of in the gospel of Luke in the book of acts. Um, you have, you have absolutely, it's the claim that, um, Jesus is the son of David, right? He's born with Jewish flesh, right? He, um, uh, uh comes to his people the jewish people first because they have been elected by god they are the people through whom god has and is working out his um promises for salvation for the, his people as well as for the you know for the world so he does, he he comes into a people that loves and obeys the Torah, right? And his parent, he's circumcised in the gospel of Luke. His, his parents are Torah observant, his, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth are Torah, you know, blameless, Luke 1.6 says, um, in terms of the law law of Moses. And so, and so, so in every way, right, it's, um, he is, you know, portrayed as the Messiah of Israel. And as Paul would say, but Luke sort of shares this, I think. You know, the pagans or the Gentiles are those who are grafted in and are the outworking, basically, of God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. I don't necessarily want to say on the other hand, but here's where, you know, you framed it as a, there's this and there's that. The, the, so all of that reminds us of, you know, on the one hand, um uh, the Jewish like the way in which I don't know the best language for this, the Jewish roots of Christianity, the way in which mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, um, the synagogue or Judaism like are, are I don't know if estranged is the right word, but sort of like our siblings, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in a way. Um, and yet on the other hand, right, there's a pretty grandiose, difficult claim, you know, that forces you to go along with it or reject it in the book of acts, which, you know, obviously really strongly identifies Jesus resurrection from the dead his enthronement to God's right hand as basically the way in which, you know, the hope of Israel has been fulfilled. So Paul's argument throughout the book of acts is I'm Jewish to the core. I believe everything in the law and the prophets. Um, uh, uh I love the Torah. I follow the Torah. I'm, you know, like I speak Hebrew, you know, like, um, <laughs> And why am I here? I'm on trial because of like my faithfulness to the hope of Israel. By the way, that's hope of Israel has come about in this guy that you, you, you know, that our Jewish leaders have crucified mm. and God is raised from the dead. And so, you know, if you agree with that, I mean, Paul, I don't think would in any way in Acts see himself as marking, a, you know, any kind of break with Judaism, but he's giving it a very particular definition you know mm. of which now I am 2000 years a part of that's saying and what you know Judaism entails or what faithfulness to that heritage is is messiah is Jesus of Nazareth you know crucified raised from the dead and thrown at God's right hand mm. so um if that's supersessionism supersessionism then it's some it's going to be hard i think for christians to fully ever be able to avoid that mm-hmm. nevertheless i do think there are ways we can be honest about that claim while not making sort of nasty um mm. ah historical anachronistic claims you know that sort of like devolve onto you know um, all all of the stereotypes or even that the Torah isn't good or that, you know, things along those lines that I think Christians can still confidently be Christians and yet say all of our ways uh, and our forebears ways of like trying to be Christian, you know, by, you know, um, actually harming and othering, Mm. you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters is just garbage and we don't need to be a part of it. So I don't, hopefully that makes sense.
0: It yeah. does, yeah. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned like some of the speeches in Acts, and so I was interested through the book you kind of talk about various literary techniques that are that are employed to kind of um, forefront this messianic identity of Jesus. So like, you know, the hymns and psalms mm. um, yep. throughout, and then the speeches in Acts. And so I was thinking a bit about how, just, just asking a bit about this these different kind of language forms that are employed and how you kind of, you know, Looking for them and how they helped yeah. um, with this kind of argument of the of, of forefronting messianic identity.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess I just you know that was it's to some extent you might be alluding to the first chapter of the second part of the book where mm. I talk about all of the ways in which um, you know messianic discourse is embedded in sort of like the New Testament's engagement of scripture of you know uh, the scriptures of Israel is just sort of remarkable so whether it's you know messianic hymns to Jesus that you know the characters in the first Uh, First chapter or two of Luke are singing or in which I think Paul or earlier Christians composed in Colossians, you know, one Mm. uh, and Philippians two, two or whether they're in terms of, you know, sort of like the stereotypical direct citations, you know, this happened in order to fulfill this that you see in Matthew. Or sometimes, you know, you see them as you're, you know, also mentioned in terms of the speeches here, Length, you know, you see that especially in Acts 2 and Acts 13, where there are these sort of like lengthy interpretations of the scriptures of Israel um, and showing, you know, basically, you know, reading or rereading Israel scriptures and history and showing how this is, you know, where it's basically going uh, in terms of their, you know, uh, starting point, which is really the crucified uh, and risen Jesus, and so yeah, just in a lot of ways in which I was sort of like struck mm. by how different literary forms in the New Testament um, uh, draw upon sort of messianic language from the Old Testament.
0: Yeah. Mm. So when you and when you started to go into that that second section, you go like, okay, I'm going to start to look at these key doctrinal loci of, of, of scripture yeah. and of Christology, soteriology, uh, eschatology, and ecclesiology, um, you know, was it, was there surprise? Cause I've asked already about the surprising things you maybe found in, when looking at different New Testament texts, were they kind of surprising as you started to go, okay, now I'm going to see how this, how I can lead this to something that's, you know, coherent yeah. and somewhat unified yeah. as a, as a statement to this. Were there ways that that, surprised you in that you thought, Oh, the messianic theology will mean this kind of Christology or this kind of ecclesiology. And when you got there, you're like, huh, it's actually asking me, you know, maybe not like totally different, but just it, it went a bit more in one direction than another that you maybe thought.
1: Yeah. Um, that's another, yeah. I love the question. Um, I don't know if it went in a different direction than what I had thought as, as much as I'll say everybody knows that, you know, the theme of union with Christ or <laughs> participation in, you know, like um, inescapable if you're talking about Paul. Right. I think I was surprised to see how many other texts in the New Testament don't use the same, the exact same language that Paul uses. They're not using necessarily en Christo or talking about being baptized into Christ, you know, in the same way that you see in Paul. And yet sort of like that soteriological theme, uh, if you want to call it that, or even ecclesiological, those sorts of themes actually are part and parcel of quite a few New Testament texts. And in New Testament texts that are also using similar messianic images. So, I, I guess one text that I was, you know, um, that I loved like working on and seeing was actually the Book of Revelation. And so, um, for example, you have like Christ's identity and his people's identity, right, are mapped onto each other um, in Revelation, just as they are, you know, in Paul, when we look at those participation texts. Mm. Some of this goes, you know, one of my favorite, you know, uh, verses actually in Revelation, I think it's Revelation 3, 21 and 22, you know, but it, and I, I'll just, do my best from memory, but basically the risen Jesus there is, you know, saying to the church, you know, to the one that conquers, um, I will, um, you know, give to him to sit on my throne, you know, just as I have sat down on the father's throne. So basically as you know, Christ has been resurrected and exalted and thereby shares in glory with the father, you know, seated on his throne. And of course, there's a lot of Old Testament messianic texts, Psalm 110, amongst others, you know, that are probably, you know, going off uh, in some of our minds here. In the same way, like that messianic promise, he's like, I'm going to give it to you and extend it to you. So hopefully that makes sense. But then you actually see, you know, the rest of Revelation, you have as Christ has conquered, it's a, you know, military image there that's being used in a peculiar way. So the church is called to, overcome or to conquer. As Christ is, you know, robed in white, so his people then that are faithful and loyal to him are robed in white. And so there's just this sort of um, way in which many of these different messianic scriptural promises that we're not surprised to see maybe applied to Jesus are actually extended to the people, so that the people then are sharing, basically mm-hmm. almost as the referent of Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, uh, as they uh, as they follow their Messiah. So I don't know. I could bring other texts into that, but I guess I was, you know, um, working working through uh, the different New Testament texts. You know, surprised to see. Participation isn't just Paul or maybe mm-hmm. Paul and John, but there's actually at least what I refer to as a sharing in the rule of Christ uh, kind of theme that pervades mm. uh, the New Testament texts. So that, that was at least one of my fond insights in the second part of the book. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, we've been talking a lot about Jesus as messianic king um and so we should actually think a bit about then what what is the kingdom uh, or how this um thinking through all all this kind of um variance and but and unity and you know different ways that people kind of went into this angle of of, of talking about it shapes then the kind of kingdom that jesus leads um and the one that we are brought into uh, so yeah. How, how, like, you know, obviously that's a bit, I'm not saying like, <laughs> this is a huge question you have to go, you know, right. really, you know, but like just, you know, insights on, you know, what is the, the, the kingdom that this is, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, you know, you know, cause that's obviously a natural flow on, right. If you say someone's a king, then it brings into mind, well, yeah. okay. They, they, they rule over something. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, you
1: know, I mean, I do think the, the, the last chapter I talk about this when it's basically, you know, I do think when you are looking at texts, like maybe Psalm 72, you know, where God is, uh, sorry, where the Psalmist is basically praying that God would bring his perfect and righteous and just King. Hmm. And then the consequences of that are that it would lead to a land and a creation that is fertile and flowing, you know, with, Uh, abundance and enough for everyone, where the poor uh, are actually no longer marginalized and impoverished, but have what they need, uh, where nations and peoples are living together, you know, in peace and justice and harmony. I think, you know, it's sort of like the vision that you get of uh, at the end of Revelation, where it's sort of, you know, this is ultimately, I think, where the Bible says the kingdom, what the, what the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom is, right? A world that's renewed and recreated Uh, with justice and harmony and love and flourishing and peace where his image bears are not like raping the, uh, the environment, but are actually stewarding it as the image Mm -hmm. bears they were intended to be. Um, So where we don't, you know, as Romans eight has it sort of like, we are waiting for that and hoping Mm -hmm. for that in faith, even though we don't see it now, um, where do we see the kingdom now, right? I, I mean, where is God's? I would just, you know, I think of God's kingdom in terms of how the synoptics talk talk of it. It's God's dynamic rule in the person of Jesus where the risen Jesus is present. And we see it, but can never like fully grasp onto it or hold it or get, mm. or get it. So we see it in places that are actually living out the vision of Jesus and the kingdom of God. We see it, I think, Um, I'm not going to ever identify it with a church, but sometimes Mm. you can see it, right, in churches or in ministries Mm. or in peoples, right, that gather together in the name of Jesus and uh, um, are living uh, a different way of life, right, in obedience to him. And, you know, at the end of the book, I talk some about this, you know, in ways maybe that reject, you know, violence and racism, in ways that are looking to... Embody new economic practices that uh, um, uh, extend hospitality and welcome to one another as well as to those on the outside or on the margins. So I think there are these—you know—there are places where we see um, Satan's kingdom being demolished and destroyed, destroyed because those that are without or uh, are in pain or in suffering are actually being um, restored into a form of human flourishing. These are places I, it's, you know, I think the kingdom of God is almost impossible to give like a definition to and for, but I think these are some of the places and ways in which we can see it um, in our world. Although, you know, without fully ever
0: grasping it because our world just doesn't have it yet. So, yeah. Thank you for that. That's that's really helpful. Um, I was thinking about like you know like you, you talk about the way that you know the, that those writing the New Testament those those early disciples and followers you know are engaging the scriptures of Israel and drawing them. And then as you say, there's explicit times where they say, "Hey, this thing's fulfilled." Um, mm. But then there's also times where it's just like as you say, it's it's a, it's a small reference to an image that so they're not hanging a hat on. Um, mm. It's just or it's, or it's it's you know you a, know a, an employment of particular language that for their audience brings to mind you know a flood of other images and references and, and expectations and hopes and trials right. and history floods in with it um yeah. and i was thinking about i've been mean, reading a bit of stuff about like you know adaptation recently and you know that um adaptation they said, you know requires a knowing audience right like you mm. know, so if you go to see an adaptation of hamlet you know there's some understanding that you yeah. kind of know the story of hamlet so if things have changed, it, it clicks yeah. to you that you're like, oh, they, they've yeah. done that. And what does that mean? And what's that choice then? Um, and then so I was thinking of then the difficulty for many of us approaching this today being often an unknowing audience, or at least not definitely not to the extent that potentially these original audiences were knowing in the sense of mm-hmm. the, that familiarity, that, you know, being drenched in these images and yeah. language um, and how that makes it kind of difficult then to kind of see what's Actually, at play. Um, Yeah. Do you think that's you know a bit of the case? And then, if so, like, what are the ways that folks can you know find their way to you know to to see other than obviously engaging great books like the messianic theology of the New (laughs) Testament to help you see where these are? But yeah, yeah, Yeah. I was just you know curious about that connection.
1: Oh yeah. I, l- let me give like one really practical um, way to do this. And there's, there's aii I'll, I'll say more after this, but like one really practical way I thought about at one point writing a book or doing something on this <coughs> called sort of like something like, you know, Israel Psalms is the matrix for early Christian Christology. I just have a way with titles, right? Doesn't that just like, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds awful. Uh, but, um, no, I mean the, I mean, the Psalter is just, you know, obviously I think it's like 73 or so of those Psalms are like spoken of as, you know, David's Psalms. There's, you know, obviously like early Christian tradition, you know, kind of a belief that like David just was the author of all of them. It has this Davidic shape and flavor to it. People have shown the way that it's edited and been put together. albeit with disagreements on what this always means, but with, you know, um, certain hopes for monarchy and so forth. And so the Psalms are just like a beautiful, uh, there's so much that they're also doing besides this, but they're also just a beautiful expression of basically God's intention to rule his people through the kind of figure that he's described in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 someone that loves Torah and loves wisdom and that God has you know anointed and given his spirit to to rule over his people and i'm i'm amazed at the way in which the psalter often speaks of the culpability of god's people um but there's no royal culpability i think that, you know there's the 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 king that's spoken of there is always rightly expressing his love and hope for for god um even as he's you know suffers and so forth so i'm, I'm maybe i'm going too long on this but for mm-hmm. me you know, and i guess i'll also just add the the new testament is constantly invoking the psalms mm-hmm. um, i've already mentioned a few of them but you know if you don't know well psalms 1 and 2 uh, 18 and 19, you know, 18, 72, 89, 130. There's just like some of these that are so central to the new Testament message. I'd say that would be a great, great place to start. Mm. Um, just a sensitive reading though of, you know, uh, as a Christian, I call it the old Testament or first Testament, whatever, but just a sensitive reading of, you know, the old Testament will, you know, um, grow you and to see so many things that are there. And it's not all messianism, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that's going on in the old Testament. That's not that. Um, but certainly that's where the new Testament is getting it's, Mm -hmm. you know, messianic imagery, uh, Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 17 and first and second Kings. And, you know, so Mm. on and on and on it goes, Mm. uh, if you really have extra time, you know, there's, um, you can pick up some great books on this. I mean, a few that have helped me. Um, uh, well, one that just came out, but Andy Abernathy and Greg Goswell have a great book called God's Messiah in the old Testament. Um, but then there's also just sort of like helpful guides, um, to reading some of the second temple texts, Psalms Mm. of Solomon, um, that if you can, you know, kind of, you I don't want to say everyone thought the imagery or the the vision of Psalms and Solom, Psalms of Solomon was going to be how it was all going to work out, but it's at least one expression of Jewish hope for a messianic ruler. So mm. those are at least a, those would be at least a few places to start. I had so many different guides: William Horbury, uh, Jewish Messianism, and the Cult of Christ um people like paula frederickson uh john collins book on the star and the scepter many many others that um were helpful guides at least for me
0: to get into some of the uh the jewish texts yeah Now, oh, thank you for that so 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 east is fast approaching uh and um particularly you know, when this comes out um and so people were you know thinking about you know jesus the messiah at egypt and so uh, Egypt, Easter, um, and, and so I wanted to get a bit of your insights here, and I think actually where we just were is a good place to start in that you kind of show how much the synoptics lean on the suffering king idea in the Psalms, like this this suffering Davidic king figure, because I yeah. think often if we think of like, and it's not because it's not there, but like if you go, oh, what's the suffering figure from the old Testament that that's important around Easter. I mean, uh, yeah. Isaiah, Isaiah, that's where exactly. we're going. Yeah. But I thought it was yeah. really interesting yeah. that you're like, you know, it's they're actually really playing with this yeah. rhythm of the Psalms of the suffering King um, to yeah. point to Jesus' missing identity in that passion and yeah. Um, uh, experience. Yeah,
1: no, I, that absolutely. It's um, again, I'm not, I don't want to play these texts off <clears> each <throat> other, but I do think you're right. Like we would think, Isaiah 53 would sort of be the, the key text right that the New Testament would pick up on <laughs> and it certainly is in the New Testament. you get you know first Peter is probably the main the main one, the Ethiopian eunuch and Axade is obviously reading Isaiah 53. but right when you if you just sort of take Luke's account of Jesus on the Emmaus road where you know you remember the story, the disciples don't know that are on the road, don't know it's him. Uh, and, um, he be, Jesus kind of berates them and says, didn't, you know, you know, what the scriptures were talking about, like, <laughs> you know, a Messiah that was going to suffer and then, you know, mm. be raised again on the third day. And if you ask, okay, well, Jesus help me understand, you know, like what you're thinking, where, where do the scriptures say that? And you just kind of take Luke, uh, as your, um, or the synoptic tradition really, But as sort of like how you're going to answer the question, then it is remarkable that you have like very few references to anything like the Isianic suffering servant. You have a little quote, he was numbered among the transgressors, which is not in Luke 22, it's not necessarily as his crucifixion. And it's a weird quote to, you know, figure out exactly what it's doing. What you do have are all kinds of allusions and explicit citations of the Davidic psalms of a righteous sufferer. Um, right? They mix wine and myrrh and they give him uh, right a drink. Right in Psalm sixty-eight, um, uh, they uh, are referring to him, of course, you know, in mockery, not as the servant or something, but they're mocking him as the one who claimed to be the King of Israel. And of course Mm. the entire scene is a mock royal enthronement. Right? Mm. Uh, And the gospels in many ways are reversing that, you know, saying uh, this actually is his royal enthronement. Mm. And then when Jesus, you know, dies, right? His last words are, you know, he cries out to, um, to God with the language, a direct quote of Psalm 30 and says, Father into your hands, right? I commend my spirit. And then, if you if you're you know think that Axe is sort of a sequel to Luke, as I do, and I think most do. Then when you have Peter, you know, basically saying, listen, what are we going to do with Judas who betrayed Jesus? You know, we need a 12th apostle. And he draws upon these two seemingly random texts from the Psalter uh, to, you know, explain Judas's apostasy and their need to pick someone. And they just look like, Peter, come on, like, where are you getting these texts, right? <laughs> but the logic here is, right? Judas was, an, you know, using the imagery of the, the Psalms, Jesus was... Pl- uh, Judas was playing the script the role uh from the script of the enemy of the Davidic king mm-hmm. and as a result right was treacherous and betraying him and so Peter's thoughts are right deeply indebted to the psalms because and then he's mm-hmm. you know in psalm uh in, in Acts 2 of course going to say uh that you know the um Uh, the outpouring of the spirit is the result of the fact that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah raised from the dead and exalted at God's right hand. And there's just all kinds of Psalm texts popping, you know, in that uh, speech as well. So if you, if you sort of like, I think at least stay with the logic of Luke and the clues that he gives to you, then the primary image is we go back to the Psalter. We read the Psalms of David, who was the, anointed, right, the Mm -hmm. king of Israel. And we read these almost as prayers or expressions of, right, through the mouth of David, but giving utterance in many ways to the vocation and the experiences of Jesus, who was a faithful and righteous uh, son of the Father, even in the midst of suffering, and as a result, God vindicated him. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, I guess, as we're thinking about Good Friday and Easter, those are certainly some of the texts. And again, I don't want, Isaiah 53 is important. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's not, <laughs> but it's not, I don't think it does quite the amount of work for us uh, in terms, at least of what the New, Te- the New Testament texts, in terms of um, explaining to us the, the sufferings of the Messianic
0: King. Mm. So, no, that's really that's really great. So I think that is very helpful for people. And like, look, you can w- blow your congregation's mind with these, you know, by showing you know, like you know that sign. Um So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess like you know, it's an interesting point that, that that kind of enthronement, that kind of f- flipping that around too, as this kind of way of showing that this is yes, this kingship and this messianism come to a head. Um, you know, rather than as coming to a failure, um, this right. is the, yeah. the, the flip around again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. Well, yeah. look, Joshua, thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful. The book, folks, is The Messianic Theology of the New Testament, uh, out now with Erdman's. Uh, and, yeah, definitely recommend, as we talked about before, the first part is kind of looking at the scriptures, the New Testament, and, and, and showing where this messianic identity, um, you know, is the presupposition and content in them. And then, as we talked about, the second part is bringing together, you know, these ideas uh, in conversation with kind of key um Christian claims, doctrinal claims, and it's, it's really fruitful and exciting if you're trying to think about, you know, how we read this New Testament um, in a way that that does answer, you know, reproach some of these big questions and also holds together around the subject of Jesus in a particular um, mode or motif. So I'd, I definitely recommend folks check it out and pick it up where they can. Uh, Joshua, is there anything else you would like to draw people's attention to or promote or, or plug?
1: Oh, thanks. Uh uh I I do have a podcast called right. forwardpodcast.com and one time I was on a podcast and I didn't promote it and <laughs> I got in trouble. So no one no one contacted you asking me to ask uh, to ask me that question, right? <laughs> No, no. forward podcast no thanks
0: okay. yeah thanks Leo. Yeah. what's the what's the give us the pitch of the podcast what's the we,
1: yeah so it's uh i uh teach at trinity evangelical divinity school and um basically we just try to have conversations often with faculty and alum uh uh to hear a little bit about sort of their vocational theological trajectory mm-hmm. what some of the things they're working on and thinking about and generally just try to have a uh, have a few laughs and have,
0: have some fun as well. So great. Great. Well, if you listen yeah. to this podcast, no doubt you listen to like seven others. So, uh, you can add that to your, to your weekly rotation. Uh, Joshua, thank you for for joining us today and and thanks folks for, for coming on board and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Liam.